Amen. Good morning. So good to see all of you. I also want to welcome all the guests uh, who are here today. I want to welcome those who are joining us online uh, from really all over the place. It's so good to be with you. Look forward to jumping into a new sermon series this morning. We serve a God who is a big God who occasionally asks you and asks the church to do really big things. But we serve a big God who every single day is asking us to do really small things well. And a lot of times it's uh, being faithful with the small things that opens us up to how God wants to use us to do big things. Think about some of the parables Jesus tells. Jesus tells parables about mustard seeds and yeast, something that's really small that ends up serving a, a really big purpose. So something I do with my kids is I want them to understand this, how this big God occasionally asks to do big things, but a big God who every single day is asking us to do small things. And uh, we go rock climbing sometimes. We just enjoy it as a family. I, I love watching my kids have an adventurous spirit. And both of my boys have never shied away from a challenge or a risk. And little Truett from a young age, just, he would climb walls without even being hooked up to something. And then little Noah thinks through and he's taking these risks. I love watching both of them. This past Monday, we went, we went rock climbing. And I love just little life lessons that I hope my boys are learning. Like you can't get to the top unless you take seriously every single step of rock climbing. But this past Monday, we went with uh, Justin Foreman and Justin brought two of his kids. And so we're watching our kids do a lot of rock climbing. Little Nolan, who's Noah's age, uh, it did a great job. I think it was his first time to, to rock climb. And at one point he starts scaling this wall. And I said, dude, if you beat your dad, I will tell this story on Sunday morning in front of everybody. All right, so can we just, is that up there? Let me just show, is there a picture first? Because first, all right, the, the, here's the picture, all right? That's your preacher and his hat is backwards for a couple of reasons, all right? One, when I first started dating Casey, she said it was cute when guys wore hat backwards. And we've been together for a while, but I like my wife to think I'm cute, all right? And, and sometimes people look at me and they're like, man, you don't dress or act like a preacher. And I'm like, thank you. I take that as a great honor. I appreciate it. But behind me, you can see way up at the top is Nolan. And right there is Justin. And I thought, oh my goodness, Nolan's going to beat his dad to the top. I got to get this on video. All right. So here's my promise to Noah, Nolan. And here's something for you to see. Can we hit this? So I told Nolan, if he beats his dad to the top, I'm going to tell the story of my sermon. Oh, and he did. What? <laughs> uh, all right. So Nolan, where are you? Are you over there? Can I see your hand? Can we just put our hands together for Nolan? Awesome job. <laughs> man, I love it. Um, sometimes I think about how God has used small things and even small people to do great things. Every week here at Sycamore View, we have the Boys and Girls Club who meet on our campus. And sometimes a, lot, a long time can go by without us reminding the church of why this, is, why this happens and the opportunity that's here for us every week. I mean, almost every weekday of the year, not just in the school year, but year round, we have the Boys and Girls Club here. And in the school year, it seems that there are 150, 180 kids, and the number may be a little small in the summertime, but the noise of children in our church learning and playing, and it's, it's fantastic. It's awesome. But most of you may not know that this didn't start with us having this big dream of somebody coming and using our facility. It started with us adding on to our facility, and then some of you started to pray really big prayers of God, how can we use our facility for kingdom significance? Because we don't just want our building used on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, and God started working in that. 
But it was a few years ago before we even had this idea of partnering with the club that a young kid named Aaron came over on a Wednesday afternoon and knocked on the doors of this church. Aaron lived in the neighborhood, lived in the neighborhood. And Aaron asked if there's someone here who could hang out with him. And they did. And then Aaron started to bring friends. And then it led us to start asking questions of even though we are next door to a daycare facility and we have parents day out right here on our campus, we started asking questions about how many kids in our community don't have anywhere to go after school. And we were blown away at how high that number was, which started a relationship with the Boys and Girls Club. It started with one kid coming over and knocking on the door to see if somebody would just hang out with him and play with him. And now hundreds of people are on our campus every year through the club. I have a friend named Pam Cope. Pam uh, lived in Missouri for a long time, then relocated to Dallas and just recently moved back to Neosho, Missouri. Pam had a son who was 15 years old who in 1999, uh, Jansen, if you go to that next picture, Jansen was 15, had just finished uh, baseball practice and went home, took a nap and never woke up. He had a heart defect that they weren't aware of. And instead of people bringing flowers to the funeral, they asked for gifts. And it ended up being around $30,000 it was raised for his name. And Pam and her husband didn't know what to do with it. So they were in their grief. And her husband uh, was a journalist, worked at a local newspaper. And they would travel around some. And they didn't know what to do with this money. Should they do something local? Should they buy jerseys for the public school, uh, a sports team, or a cheerleading squad? What should they do with it? And then one day, Pam just opened up. She was at a, at a hotel and looked at the New York, Times, New York Times, if you go to this next picture. And this was on the front cover of the New York Times. And it was the first time she had heard about this lake in Ghana where there were kids who had been sold into slavery. Kids as young as three years old who worked 14, 17-hour days who were whipped if they don't bring in so many fish or clean the nest properly. So Pam called up whoever took this photo and asked, how can I get in touch with someone in Ghana who can help? So Pam started an effort where the first time over there, they rescued seven kids out of slavery. But then Pam got another phone call, which she never expected, and it was a phone call from Oprah Winfrey. Because Oprah also saw this photo. And Oprah called to see how she could help. And they said, well, we could tell you, but there's some stay-at-home mom in Neosho, Missouri, who is already on it. And Oprah calls up Pam, has Pam come on her show. Pam went on the Oprah show. It shares her testimony, shares her grief, the loss of her son, uh, the journey of her faith. And now that they're over in Ghana and at that time in Cambodia, rescuing kids out of slavery. And it was the first time ever in the history of Oprah's show that there was a standing ovation that began with Oprah. And it was Pam Cope, who had just a little money from the death of her son, wondering what they'd do with it for the honor of his name and the honor of God's name. And now they have this ministry that's been going on for almost 15 years, rescuing kids all over the world. God's looking for people who will be faithful with the small things so that God can get you and get to the church to be a part of how God's doing some big things. This morning, I'm gonna start a new series, a five-week series. I wanna talk about the shortest books in the Bible. And I've been planning this series for over a year because I bet most of you have not spent a lot of time studying the books of Obadiah, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. And you may be thinking 
this could be a waste of my time because I didn't even know some of those books were in the Bible. Why are we going to take five weeks and talk about it? But here's the deal, all right? At some point, the church put together the Bible as we have it today. God worked in the church to affirm certain books. And there were certain books, four of the five shortest books in the Bible. These are the five books in the Bible that are only one chapter each. So I'm going to call this series Bible Tweets. And you may get upset because you may not be a Twitter person, but it just sounded better than Bible Facebook, all right? Or Bible Snapchat. It just, Bible Tweets sounds so much better, all right? So I just went with it. We're going to talk about the five shortest books in the Bible. I'm going to take one each week because here's the thing. If it's in the Bible, we may need to know why it's there. And is there something that's missing that can enhance our formation as disciples of Jesus that's found in something so small? Because if the church thought it was worth, through the power of the Spirit, to keep these books in the Bible for the church to be encouraged by it, then maybe we need to know why. So today I want to dive into the book of Obadiah. Go ahead and start trying to find it in your Bible. It's going to take some of you a long time, all right? And here's the book of Obadiah. Uh, and there are very few things we know about this guy, Obadiah. There are a few different Obadiahs who show up in the Bible. The name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Obadiah is a book in between Amos and Jonah. So that can help you out if you haven't already gone to your table of contents. And Obadiah, so he's in between one of the most hated prophets of all time, which is Amos. And a prophet named Jonah, whose book ends with him being upset because God is as compassionate as God says he was. And Obadiah is right in the middle of them. And something else that's really interesting about Obadiah, almost every prophet, the big prophets, the little prophets, almost every prophet, there may be an indictment against a certain nation, but they also spend time talking about the nation of Israel and God's people, but not Obadiah. Obadiah writes a book, 21 verses, and he writes it against one group of people with very little to say about God's people. So he writes his book to the Edomites. Which right now, there may be some of you and you're like, man, I just want to come to church and hear a word that can help me stop cursing and live better and stop some of my addictions. And now we're going to hear a sermon about the Edomites, all right? And you don't have to know who the Edomites are to get to heaven. But I wanted to make an argument today that Obadiah is one of the most applicable, helpful books to us that has some power that can lead us this week to being world changers. Obadiah is, it's about the Edomites. And if you don't know who the Edomites are, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. And even if you don't know your Bible very well, Esau was this brother. He had a twin brother way back in Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, brothers didn't get along very well. There's a lot of sibling rivalry. How many of you have experienced some sibling rivalry in your life? You know what I'm saying? Especially in the book of Genesis, if you're an older brother, it usually does not turn out well for you. You got Cain and Abel, that didn't work out well, all right? Bunch of sibling rivalry. You got Esau and Jacob, you have Isaac and Ishmael, then you have Joseph and all of his brothers. It's like brothers show up in Genesis and they don't get along at all. So this happens to some of us. Thanksgiving and Christmas comes, I'm a grown man. My brother's a grown man. We get together over the holidays, our IQ drops by 15 points, all right? And we're right back to acting like 11-year-olds. Uh, the, the siblings don't get along. Check it out, all right? Here's Isaac and Jacob, and here is how their birth was described. Check this out. In Genesis chapter 25, here's what it says. The children struggled together within her, 
And she said, <laughs> this is their mom, if it is to be this way, why do I live? How many of you have ever had a... <laughs> How many women in the room have ever thought this when you were pregnant, all right? If this is how it's going to be, just, I don't, I, maybe she's saying, just take me right here. Maybe she's saying, no, nah, I cannot do this anymore. And here's the word of the Lord that comes to her. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. I, I shouldn't be laughing right now, all right? Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. Here's a woman who's inquiring of God for a blessing, and the word of God is, you've got some nations in your womb. I bet her response was, I was hoping for like a 21-ounce, seven-and-a-half-pound baby, not a nation. And now there are two, two nations who aren't even going to get along. And here's, here's the birth. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out, he was red, all his body, like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. So here are these kids who at birth, it's like foreshadowing what the rest of their lives were going to be together. If you don't know how this story goes, Esau was the older brother. And it's back then, like the older brother, there was a birthright that was given you, like an inheritance. And it was given to the oldest son. But Esau sold his because he came home one day and he was hungry. And Jacob had made some stew. <laughs> he made some soup, all right? Now, Esau was a man of the field. He's described as a guy who loved to hunt. Jacob was one who liked to live inside the tent. He liked to cook, all right? So it's not that one was more masculine than the other. They were just different in every kind of way. And Esau came, and he had been out, and he was hungry, so he sold his birthright for a meal. And before you laugh at him, you know there's some meal somebody could place in front of you too, right? You put a rack of ribs and some banana pudding in me, I can't make decisions, all right? Uh, you ask a question, and my response may just be, yeah, sure, just go with it, all right? I got a meal in front of me. He sells it for a birthright. And then when Esau sees what happens, he's livid. So here's what ends up happening. For Esau, he begins holding a grudge. He hates his brother. And it goes on for years. Now, here's something that's really interesting I'll find in the Bible is there are times in Genesis where funerals happen and you just have one little sentence about it. Look at this. In Genesis 25, verse 9, at Abraham's funeral, he had two sons who did not like each other at all. Yet it says his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in a cave. Years later, these brothers come back for a funeral. And in Genesis 35, 29, at Isaac's funeral, after years of hating each other, it says, Isaac breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, they buried him. Like, I want to know more of what that was like because these were brothers who hated each other, yet they came together for a funeral. And did they start hating each other right when the funeral was over? I bet you have seen a time in your life when there's been a funeral that has brought a family back together again. I bet you've also experienced a funeral before where that family drama just came and kept going right after it. Esau and Jacob hated each other, and here's what happened, and here's why I think this should concern us in some ways today, is all it took was some sibling rivalry to start a grudge and a form of bitterness in one person and then in a family and then it was handed on to the next generation and a thousand plus years go by and those two nations, those two 
generations that came from them still hated each other. At what point is there someone who says, it stops right now? At what point is there a generation that says, the grudges that have been handed on to us, the bitterness, it's got to stop. A chain's got to be broken right here. We can't keep going on like this. How's this worked in the world today? There's still countries who hate each other and people who hate each other because of things that happened hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. So you had this time, hundreds of years ago, after Jacob and Esau died, Moses leads the people out of Israel. God has set people free, and then they're traveling. And you have this story in Numbers chapter 20, and it goes like this. Moses sent messengers from Cadus to the king of Edom, the people of Esau. And he says, thus says your brother Israel, You know all the adversity that has befallen us, how our ancestors went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians oppressed us and our ancestors. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice, and he sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt, and here we are in Cadiz, a town on the edge of your territory. Now let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through or we will come out with the sword against you. The Israelites said to him, we will stay on the highway. And if we drink of your water and we, uh, we and our livestock, then we will pay for it. It's only a small matter. Just let us pass through on foot. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large force, heavily armed. And thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through their their territory. So Israel turned away from them. How about that? They just wanted to, they just wanted a shortcut. Like we're not going to eat your crops. We're not going to drink anything. Can we just come through your land? The animosity, the hatred, the grudges that just went on one generation after another. When that story happened, I wonder what it was like for the kids to look up at their dads who were soldiers in this army or their kings or to look to their mom and be like, why won't, why won't we let them through? And they're like, well, hundreds of years ago, here's what happened to your father Esau. And then you have the Israelites who, why will they not let us through? And they're like, man, hundreds of years ago, here's the rift that happened between Jacob and Esau. And here you are five, six hundred years later, and this is happening. At one point, does it stop? Let's go open your books, Bibles to Obadiah. And if we can go back just to the first four verses, here's how Obadiah begins. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against it for battle. I will surely make you least among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Your proud heart has deceived you. You that live in the clefts of the rock, whose dwelling is in the heights, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. How is that to the opening of a book in the Bible, right? There's like no, hey, you know, we thank God for you, God created. It's like, man, you have made your dwelling in the highest places, thinking that you are safe in your lofty palaces and in your wealth. But God's coming to bring you down. All right, look in Obadiah, beginning in verse 10. And here's what it says. If you want to understand Obadiah, just read verses 10 through 14. For the slaughter and violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. All right, but here's the deal. Esau or the Edomites aren't the ones 
who actually like pulled out their swords to take out Jacob. That's not how it works. All right, so let me set it up like this. You got the Edomites, the people of Esau, who are over here, and they're in their land, their lofty houses, and they're kind of experiencing a time of peace. But not too far from them, they can see where the Israelites are, and the Israelites are over here. And what happens and why God is so upset with the Edomites in the book of Obadiah, it's not because the Edomites were waging war and bringing their swords and trying to take out the Israelites. Here's what happens. Look at this in verse 11. Here's what it says. On the day when that happened, when they were taken captives, on that day, you stood there. You stood aside. Some of your versions, they stood aloof. They saw people who were hurting and being oppressed. And they did nothing. Uh, when I was in high school, especially at the end of high school, I, uh, I actually like, took great joy in breaking up fights. And I used to break up fights between guys all the time. I tried to break up one girl fight, and that's all it took. I was like, I'm never doing that again, all right? Because <laughs> girls do not fight by rules. Like, it's, there are no rules. It's... it's, it's it's awful, all right? But I would jump in a guy fight and separate and pull them apart. And I think the reason I started to do that was early on in high school. There were a group of us, and before a ball game, we, would, we had like our little pregame ritual. We'd go to someone's house. We'd hang out for a little while, eat a meal. And there was one time we had this kid, one of our good friends, had a major anger problem. And one of my best friends like, smarted off, and the guy said, if you say one more word to me, if you say anything else... Um, I'm, I'm going to attack you. I forget exactly how he said it. But my buddy who had a smart mouth on him, one of my best friends, said something. You know, it's like, if you say something else, I'm going to take it. He's like, something. And this kid who had this anger issue just started pounding him. One hand after the other. One fist hitting the back of his head after another. And it happened so fast that I didn't know what to do, and I did nothing. And it was that little thing that I think it's a reason why later on I, I would try to break up fights. Just to step in and do something. Here's how it goes in Obadiah. On the day that you stood aside, on the day that strangers carried off his will and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. And this was around 587. This is the, probably the captivity when the Israelites were taken to Babylon. The Edomites see what is happening. They see it coming. Look in verse 12. But you should not have gloated over your brother on the day of his misfortune. You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their ruin. You should not have boasted on the day of their distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people on the day of their calamity. You should not have joined in the gloating over Judah's disaster on the day of his calamity. You should not have looted his goods on the day of his calamity. You should not have stood at the crossings to cut off his fugitives. You should not have handed over his survivors on the day of distress. Here they are watching the Israelites being taken into captivity, being oppressed, and not only do they stand still, after it's over, they're like, why don't we go in? Because I'm sure there's some PS4s and Xboxes left around, and let's just take whatever the enemy didn't take. And, and it even got to the point where they're like, oh, wait, 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 hey, hey, yeah, those taking them captive. We found a few behind a tree. You, you left a few. In the time of oppression, they did, they did nothing. All right, so, so here's, look, when I wrestle with the story to preach in front of you, I'm thinking through what the Bible says. And every Sunday, I hope I'm able to stand up here and try to talk to you about application. 
Because there's a lot of times churches get together and we get together with Christians and we talk about what the Bible says, but we never take it beyond that. So like, how do we live this out? And I, I hope we're a church that's eager to know what the Bible says, but that we're also eager to live out what the Bible says. So I hope every Sunday there's some kind of application, a question for you to wrestle with. I give you a challenge, some kind of prayer time, all right? But here's the thing. If you were in my place today, preaching Obadiah, and you read verses 10 through 14, what would the application be for you? Like, what, what does this have to teach us? Like, what does it mean that there's some group or some person who's in pain or they're hurting, there's oppression going on, and we did, we did nothing? How would you apply this? How would you teach it? Um, maybe you would teach it in, from a personal level. I bet there's some of you, I bet you can think of a time in your life when you were hurting, you were in pain, um, you were distressed, maybe you were oppressed. And you remember there being other people who knew about it, but they did nothing. You didn't get a phone call, not a text message, no one reached out. And you remember what that feels like, or you currently know what it feels like. And I bet there are times where we also have been sitting in a place where we know other people are going through something. Maybe someone's being bullied. We know someone's hurting and they're in pain and we don't do anything. And sometimes I don't think it's because we're bad people. Sometimes we just don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. And we can't be all things to all people. And if we try, we're usually very little to anybody, right? Some of you, if you start thinking application, maybe for you it's not from a personal level. Maybe for you it's on a social level. Because I bet you can think about groups of people or ethnic groups or folks in the city of Memphis who are experiencing some form of hurt or pain or oppression. And we don't do anything. But isn't this why many of you are driven by different convictions in your life? Because when you do see people hurting, you want to do something about it? Like, isn't this why some of you are passionate about the issue of abortion? Because you live from a belief that God is the creator of all things. And you want to be a voice for those that don't have a voice. Isn't this why some of you are really passionate about orphans and the fatherless? Because you know that there are people in our world who are hurting, who are in need of God's love, and you want to do something about it. Isn't this why, I mean, some of you who, we, we're having a number of biracial families, and, and what God has done to diversify this church, isn't, isn't this why many of us are passionate about racial issues and racial tension, and not just from a relational, personal level, from a systematic level, because we want to know what's going on and how people are hurting and what we can do about it? Isn't this why there are many Christians, not just progressive Christians, but also conservatives over the last few weeks who've really struggled with children being separated from families at the southern border? Because when we know that there are groups of people who are in pain and they are hurting and there's some form of oppression, something just doesn't feel right. That there's something going on in our spirit saying, you can't stand still. Do, do something, Right? So I bet some of you, you think about application. You think about it from a personal level because of what you've experienced or because of that, how you want to respond when people are hurting. Maybe you think about it from a social level. Maybe because of the times we're living in, you go straight to a political level of what this means for governments and countries. But what do we do 
with the message of Obadiah. Because as you, as, as you heard Obadiah, as I've read Obadiah countless times, whenever I read Obadiah, when I get to verses 10 through 14, I start thinking about the Good Samaritan. I think Obadiah is the Good Samaritan story of the Old Testament. Where in Obadiah, you read it and you, like I read it and I'm like enraged. I'm like, why do the Edomites not do that until I look in the mirror and I'm like, man, what, why are there times you don't do something? Because the Good Samaritan story, wouldn't you probably agree that's probably the most popular parable Jesus tells? There are people who aren't even Christians who know the story of the Good Samaritan. Like we use this language in, in all different forms of life. Which the Good Samaritan is a story of about a guy who gets beaten, he's in a ditch, he's about to die, and then people start walking by. You have people going to church, you have ministers, you have people coming by, and they don't do anything. And sometimes we listen to the Good Samaritan and the way we think about it is, what does it mean? Like who's in the ditch and I'm walking by it and who do I need to serve? But if you listen to the Good Samaritan, the way Jesus tells the story, it's the Jew who is down in the ditch. If you were hurting and in great pain and in distress, who's the last person in the world you would want to open your eyes to see standing over you? And that's how the Good Samaritan is told. It's like there's a Samaritan, people who had hated each other for years. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan as a response to a question. So the Good Samaritan wasn't like the sermon Jesus wrote and then waited until he got to synagogue to preach the sermon. There's a guy who asked a question, and Jesus responded with a parable, with a story. And... When Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest command, Jesus had a response to it. Now, most of us live by, how do I love God? How do I love my family? How do I love my church? How do I love my country? When Jesus responds with what is the greatest command, his response was, you love God and you love a neighbor as yourself. I'm not minimizing the beauty of the family, but Jesus doesn't respond with the greatest commands are to love a God and love a family. Jesus didn't respond with love a God and love a church or love a God and love a nation. Jesus' response was you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. The reason Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan is because a guy stood in front of Jesus and said, I need some clarification on something. Who is my neighbor? And church, this is the question that will not let the church go. It's the question that has messed with the church for 2,000 years and will continue to mess with us until the day Jesus comes and makes all things right. It's a question that will not let us go. It's the question that needs to continue to poke at our heart, our intentions, our allegiances. Who is my neighbor? And how do we live that out in a way that honors God? The last verse of Obadiah is this in verse 21. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. So with all this chaos happening in the book of Obadiah, the Edomites just standing there while stuff's going on, the last word is the kingdom is the Lord's. Through all the mess and the chaos, the kingdom of, is God's and the kingdom is coming and the church is called to embrace it. And to live as if God is in control, God is over all things, the reign of God is happening. So hopefully you can think of some way 
to pray and try to live out the beauty of this really short little book in the Bible this week. I want to ask our elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to places to receive people today. I know we're about to have one baptism. And if there's someone else who wants to surrender their life to Jesus today, to confess Jesus as the Lord of their life, to be baptized into Christ, would love for you to come up here and join us. You can come find John French, one of the elders up front. If there's someone you would like just to go to, go to a place for prayer, you can see some of our elders and leaders moving around the room. and Feel free to go and find them. Let's stand together and let's sing this song.